I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. Welcome Drew. to another round. Yeah. Uh, it's Here we a, go. Uh, it's almost um, almost in the 30s. That's right. Dirty 30. <laughs> it's our 29th episode. That's right. And, and we're, we're returning back to your favourite well, yes. the Marvel well, so, the I well mean, that keeps on giving. Mm, so, I mean, just those who've listened will know that for, for some reason, Andrew is really triggered by the fact that I like WandaVision. I'm, I'm not sure why. I think he thinks I'm a bandwagoner. Um, all I would say is I, he hasn't seen WandaVision apart from the pilot. I think you have to remain open-minded about these things. I'm I'm a discerning Marvel fan, a discerning Marvel stan. You're all I about like, the third wave, right? This is the fourth wave. The fourth wave. And they're phases. <laughs> they're not waves, they're phases. And there's four of them. Okay. So so that, that's a good segue into our first show, um, The Falcon. I keep wanting to say The Falcon and the Snowman, the 80s. The 80s film with the soundtrack by Pat. You're, Pat you're really on the pulse of popular culture yeah, right now, Billy. I know. Um, yeah. Um, so the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Now, this is, this is interesting. I mean, WandaVision, I think, is the first release in Phase 4 of Marvel. Mm. And I was well, hoping- this was apparently meant to come first. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you see what I did there? Yeah. I, just, I, feel like that, I feel like that kind of ruins the narrative I was going to spin, but I'll, I'll do I'll do it a different way. So um, your your very erudite reading is contradicted by yeah. by the naked by the naked truth fact, <laughs> by simple concrete fact. Um, let me just uh, re re spin this. Okay. Cool. I've got it now. Yeah. So One Division was the first Phase Four Marvel series I saw. Ah, okay. Well, I, I, I can't impeach that that see, qualification. See how I saved it, and I have seen the entire series. Um, like some people who Including judge it. Including Endgame. Um, Endgame's not a part of Wandavision. Oh, oh, okay. Endgame. I thought you were talking about the MCU. Um, you, you are so, you are so out of the park here. This is crazy. No, um, Avengers is part of the MCU, and Wandavision is the text in the fourth phase of the right, MCU. Okay. So you're um, fully across the fourth phase. Yeah, well, so far. So far. <laughs> oh, look, you know, one division was the you first. You just plunged straight in. I went straight in. One, um, two, three, forget about it. Yeah. Number four, Yeah. head head first. I mean, I was open-minded, <laughs> I think, which I think is what I thought was meant to be the point of this podcast. But, um, okay. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, from seeing one division, I kind of thought that phase four might be going in a bit of a new direction for mm. Marvel. I.e. Focusing good. on the sitcom. <laughs> yeah, or just good. I thought it might be going in the kind of good direction. Um, oh, wow. Or just like a more experimental, playful direction, especially since the Avengers films seem to totally exhaust the mythology of the universe. So I guess the question that Phase 4 begs is, with so much tied up at the end of the Avengers films and so much world-building kind of completed... What does the post Avengers Marvel universe look yes. like? And Avengers, sorry, and um, One Division has a really interesting answer to that question. I kind of felt like the Falcon and the Winter Snowman, like it is going for a, a <laughs> Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier. <laughs> I got Snowman. I got Snowman on the brain. The uh, Summer Snowman. The Summer Snowman. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just feel like the Falcon show um, has a, a kind of a different answer to that question. But on the whole, I think it actually doubles down on that kind of blander Marvel style. So just mm. to just to give you the backstory, um, the pilot focuses on Falcon, Sam Wilson, and Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier, um, and basically it's them returning from the blip at the end of Avengers Endgame. And mm. I guess the kind of narrative question in the first episode is who's going to become the next Captain America? So there's something. Or will there even be one? Will it will even be a Captain America? Very and, meta. Very meta. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because Captain America as a figure is already historical. And especially after the Trump era, I mean, there's something a bit untenable about Captain America, like he's such a Trumpian figure in some ways. So Mm. the series opens with Falcon kind of... In one of the early scenes, Falcon, you know, talks about the need for a new Captain America, um, implicitly recommending himself for the task and, you know, suggesting that there needs to be a more diverse vision of who and what Captain America is. Mm. And then the later part of the episode, a kind of squeaky clean, corn-fed white guy is mm. appointed as Captain America. So well, Falcon kind of... has the opportunity to adopt the, the mantle of Captain America. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, I didn't really get that. They even, uh, <laughs> the um, the character played by John Don Cheadle, whose name is discussed mm. oh, at the moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. in fact advocates that he becomes the new, yeah, yeah, the new Captain America. He's it. the kind of... he's the. Basically, he's the re- rebooted one. He says, "Well, out of in order to honour Steve Rogers' memory, yes. I will um, 
I will actually retire the shield. And the shield is effectively there's a there's a ceremony where he yes. hands over the shield, and there's it's, you know Captain America and his legacy is memorialised mm. in the in the Smithsonian, and yep. it becomes an exhibit yep. um, in a museum, mm. um, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely a part, isn't it, of the original Captain America films as well, like the idea of Captain America as embedded in official commemorated American culture yeah. as part of an American institution. He's already anachronistic when he's yes. when he started. I think exactly. like one of the pleasures of the, the Captain America series mm. um, and its sequence of films is that that really, yeah, like you said, that white bread, a classic superhero entering into, I guess, a more, yeah, a more contemporary, murky contemporary environment. More, I mean, and I, get, I think Marvel de- deals with that more successfully, for example, than transplanting the Superman character into mm. the present in some I, ways. I guess, so. yeah. I mean, I guess in the Captain America films, like, I find... That's interesting, I find, conceptually. I guess I find it... I find Chris Evans so vanilla and so yes. devoid of charisma. Or, or, and we'll talk about this in a moment. Well, he's not even in this one, so... Yeah, but... <laughs> you can't make really that objection here. But the, but the Captain America kind of style, I think, carries over into this. Like, I mean, I think the Captain America backstory is interesting conceptually, but it's offset by the way Chris Evans performs it for me, which I think in turn becomes one of the kind of sets the scene of one of the standard Marvel modes and styles of acting which we see here. So, yeah, I mean, there is that tension, right? So early on, Falcon says, you know, we um, we need new heroes suited for the time we're in. Symbols mean nothing without the women and men behind them. But at, at the end, the new Captain America is chosen in pretty kind of pretty kind of Trumpy in terms of that we need someone to inspire us again. So the way that WandaVision... I mean, I guess WandaVision deals with the end of the, the third phase and the dissolution of the Avengers through a kind of almost schizoid, like conflation yeah. of different styles and periods, a pastiche of different televisual registers, whereas this deals with it more through narrative and more through a kind of mood, a kind of sombre mood, a sense that we're in the kind of the late phase of Marvel, or that we're we're in the almost like a, a post superhero era. I think if you look at so phases one, two, and three, mm. that, that's the kind of grand narrative phase. Yes. It's the modernist phase of yes. the Marvel universe. Yep. And after that, what happens after the grand narrative is concluded? Mm. You enter into, I suppose, I guess the marginal, like the more marginal characters, marginalia. There's almost a kind of, mm. I suppose. Ironized, ironizing, or kind of minor quality to phase three, but in an interesting way, I, I kind of find. Yeah, I mean, like, yes and no for me. Like, I think the irony, I think, has always been there in the Marvel universe, and it's, it's, it's part of what I dislike about the Marvel universe. Like, it, it kind of feels to me like the Marvel universe has two basic kind of registers, right? Like, have you I, just come out as a DC fan? No, well, both. I think. Like, I think. I think. Well, I think DC's got a different... Let me... This is my kind of take, I guess, on how they're different. So I think the Marvel Universe is like an idiotic kind of seriousness that pervades a lot of it. So we've talked quite a bit on the podcast about how, for me, like, seriousness is one of my least favourite registers. Like, it's say... You know, and it's very different from, say, profundity or gravity. Like, it's, it's seriousness just as a kind of moralistic, almost like a moralistic reproach to the audience that they should be enjoying themselves because what they're watching is high concept... Obviously, like, that doesn't entirely work with the superhero format, and it becomes ridiculous after a point, especially in such a huge, evolving franchise. So it feels like in the Marvel Universe you have this idiotic seriousness combined with this kind of idiotic perkiness, and it just alternates between these two registers, like serious, perky. And the perkiness I find so sanitised and so sterilised, like, it's not the same as genuine charisma, um, and it, it's it's a very, like, knowing... It's, it's almost like... I'm going to bring out the big guns here. It's almost like, you know, that idea of capitalist realism, so that idea that, like, capitalist realism is a position that we know the system we've got is not great. We all know it's a fad, but it's the only one we've got, so we've got to pretend it works. That, that kind of... The Marvel series often feels like that. It's like there's this perky irony and kind of knowing quality that's like, yeah, we know this is all contrived, we know this is all generic, but, hey, we're just going to wink at the audience and keep going. It's like a bad faith kind of... It's not the same as charisma, I think. It's a perkiness that doesn't quite amount to charisma Mm. for me. For for me, at least, the Marvel series works best when it's engaging with the notion of celebrity. Mm. So I, I think really what's interesting about the Marvel series is that, or the Marvel universe, is that everyone there is both a superhero and a celebrity. Mm. And those two things are kind of coincident in some ways in their their self-presentation. So in some ways, the Marvel Universe is like the entourage Mm -hmm. of superhero movies. Mm. Everyone is aware that they're 
they are firstly performing a superhero role, but secondly performing a celebrity role. So they have this kind of excess of Mm. meaning that's generated by their their superherodom. And in Mm. some ways, the only way you can deal with your own, I suppose, mediatized image is becoming kind of uh, kind of ironizing or or parroting it in some ways. So I think you know Tony Stark is the ultimate example of that. Someone who's a celebrity before he's a superhero, and in some ways. He comes out at the end as a superhero, whereas his celebrity is already well established. Um, and I think, in some ways, yeah, I think what's interesting about Marvel mm. and the Marvel and the MCU, and I think in this as well, is the way that it engages with 21st century celebrity in some mm. ways, and that mm. that meta commentary about what it is, what it means to be a celebrity, and that uh, almost schizophrenic nature of what celebrity means today, mm. I think, is something that's interestingly engaged with in the Marvel universe and I think this is actually like a late work in that in some ways because these are not celebrities these are washed up celebrities Mm. in some ways and there's a big thematic thrust in this of these Falcon and Bucky Barnes aka the Winter, Winter Soldier entering their kind of late period as celebrities so their celebrity is starting to wane they don't quite have the the pool power that they did before I mean, I mean, they don't have the financial resources I, I, I get all that like I get that but I just find the register so deadening like I find the register so deadening like I mean, and I, I didn't really like entourage so maybe that's part of it as well but I just it taps into that enjoyment of being a celebrity and what it means to be a celebrity but also I guess how you engage personally with the trauma that comes with celebrity but there are lots of Marvel superheroes who aren't celebrities when they start off well, effect, the, I mean, I, the Marvel like Register is generally someone who's already... It's already pretty much an alpha character at the beginning who then becomes more mm. alpha through their mm. newfound celebrity, mm. aka their new superhero identity mm. yeah, in some no, ways. Look, I mean, yeah. look, I kind, of, I kind of get the reading. I just feel like the result is so monotonous. I mean, it's one thing to have a film that deals with celebrity in one way, but like the, the extent of it across the franchise is so... It's so kind of, yeah, I just, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good hot take. I just, I, I find think, it yeah, kind of deadening to watch. I think it taps into the enjoyment of what becoming a celebrity would be like. And also the, the mm. trauma of, or the schizophrenic notion that you're suddenly divided between your mediatized image and your, and your true self. And, mm. and how do you, how do you engage with that? And really the way they deal with it is through irony and uh, self-parody and but so I, forth. I guess I kind to of, puncture their own celebrity but I, image, I but guess, at the same time, it still it still does outlast. Yeah, I guess I just feel like that irony is so inherent to the universe. It it precedes the celebrity stuff. Like it's it's more like a principle of the entire universe in which it's set. Like it's the style. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess you've got to. Yeah, sure. I just find the register annoying to watch. Yeah, I think that's that's at least the, the kind of kernel of enjoyment that mm. I think a lot of people do get out of the Marvel mm. Universe, whether they know it or not. And it, I don't think it's any surprise that mm. these these movies really took off in that late period around E! News and, you know, the, the absolute mm. mainstreaming of kind mm. of celebrity culture mm. and um, those in particular like inside looks at celebrity, mm. celebrity lifestyles in mm. some ways as well. Like going into a Marvel Universe is like going into a into a, an insider kind of celebrity's, yeah, celebrity's and house in some ways. And I think the universe is almost like, that, you know, that metaphor for entering into a celebrity universe and mm. vicariously living a celebrity-type lifestyle. Mm. Um, I think that's interesting. So I think this is a late work in that phase over here. And clearly Falcon and Winter Soldier are mm. celebrities whose who's celebrity is waning. Mm. And I think at the end, obviously, when a new Captain America is anointed in some ways, mm. it's almost like the trauma of seeing someone else assume your celebrity or assume the mantle of yeah, your celebrity. That makes sense. But I, just, I thought that if you're so interested in the celebrity narrative, why didn't you watch WandaVision? Well... I mean, it just seems like you... It just seems like you weren't, weren't at all interested in Marvel. I'm just curious. Like, well, I, was, a, I, was, okay, yeah, right. I was quite sceptical of this, okay. um, to be honest, at the right. beginning. Um, and the, there's a first, you know, there's a 15-minute... Mm. Uh, I suppose action sequence at the beginning mm. of this where yeah, Falcon I, I, is. I think I think I mean I guess I guess part of me just doesn't entirely yeah yeah sure I mean yeah I think the action doesn't look that good on the small yeah. screen I don't yeah. and I don't think that was a particularly effective sequence yeah, yeah. but in a weird way as soon as as soon as you sort of were drawn into Falcon mm. and Bucky Barnes's backstory 
uh, they don't actually intersect at all in this pilot, which is interesting. But don't you think like it's it's yeah? I guess I just find the perkiness so kind of irritating. Like it's it's such a it's such there's such a kind of sentimental sententious masculinity to it as well like the seriousness is nearly always the province of the male characters i thought though strangely the, the yeah. per, but the perkiness tends to the perkiness tends to only come in when they're talking with female characters it seems like that's a thing throughout the series as well yeah i think i think what was interesting mm. here is that often uh, marvel characters are a bit on the mm. nose they're billionaires you mm. know they enjoy all the trappings of fame, celebrity, mm. you know, sure. superhuman strength, sure. and yet they also want to have that. They want to have their cake and eat it too. Sure. They want to be able to, you know, sure. laugh at themselves and sure. poke fun at themselves. Mm. And I found that sometimes on the nose, but here because both these characters are quite marginal, like mm. self-consciously marginal, marginal within mm. the Marvel universe, but also marginal within, I suppose, this this fourth phase. Mm. I found there's something quite. I, I was I found it easy to identify with them, and in some ways, I found them both quite endearing. Mm. In in their own ways. So you see, for example, a scene where Falcon returns to New Orleans. Okay, and I, I get that. But can I ask, why, why have you not watched WandaVision then? Like, I, what, what's the difference between this and WandaVision? Because it seems like WandaVision is so consciously about celebrity. What, what was it about this that you found compelling well, but I not think WandaVision? I there was pathos in this that engaged me. The mm. pathos engaged me not just at a meta-fictional mm. level, but actually at a character-based level. So the scenes, for example, with... Um, with Falcon, mm-hmm. um, going back to New Orleans yep. and um, navigating, I guess, the difficulties of getting sure. a loan to buy his, buy his family boat, um, in addition to Bucky Barnes, mm. uh, challenges in the dating in the dating world as a 104-year-old yeah, yeah. guy. <laughs> um, I, and then, obviously, seeing that trauma of, mm. um, I guess, Captain America, despite Falcon's very sensitive attempts to, to lay his memory to rest, mm. being revived in this quite quite shocking kind of reboot function I guess, as well. I guess I found it just like really hubristic. Like I thought it was, I didn't think, I mean, I think that melancholy is there in a lot of the third phase Marvel films as well. Look, it just felt like, yeah, I, I, I get the reading. I understand the reading. I guess I just find the tone is still pretty kind of continuous with the Marvel universe. So look, yeah. I, was probably, I was probably an out for this. Yeah, I was surprised by this. I was yeah, not right. expecting to enjoy it at yeah, all. Yeah. And... Weirdly, I was I was in. So you're I, you're an in for Falcon and the I, Snowman. I think so. The yeah, Winter Soldier. I, I think so. Cool. All right. So we're on to our next mm. series: true crime or not true crime. This is an interesting one. It was interesting, wasn't it? Like it almost felt like this. Almost felt like um, three different documentaries in one. Yeah, like it's got almost three completely different points of focus. Yeah. So yeah. The, the series we're talking about is The Lady and the Dale. Mm. Um, it's an American documentary television series. Um, it revolves around Elizabeth Carmichael, who launched the 20th Century Motor Com- mm. uh, Car Corporation and created a vehicle, uh, very famously a three-wheeled fuel-efficient mm. vehicle mm. called The Dale. Uh, consists of four episodes, um, originally pre- premiere on HBO and is now in Australia streaming on the binge streaming platform. Uh, this, is an, this is an interesting pilot mm. in some respects very fascinating um mm. case i suppose you, yeah. you might incredible d- describe story. it over here yeah, yeah an incredible story do, about do you want to maybe just give a quick overview just because there's, there's so many different moving parts exactly it. oh, it's very difficult to actually probably make i guess give a, yeah. a really yeah. detailed synopsis of what exactly well, happens in this you can almost say like pilot. There, there's three different sections right like in the first part we hear about a young man who was basically a con artist who left his family early who traveled all around the united states you know, pulling various cons. Yeah. And the second part we hear about his transition and how that felt to, to like, trans, identifying as transgender and how that felt to, at this point, her family and children. And the third part we get on to how she became involved with the invention of this new car. So it's almost like three totally different documentaries. It's very right? diffuse. Con, con artist, <laughs> trans coming out story car development. Yeah. And it, each one's got a very different kind of style, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I... I to me, I thought this was a really interesting story. Mm. I don't know exactly whether I th- agree with the way it was presented, yep. both in terms of its focus mm. and also some of the stylistic choices it made. Well, almost each section has such a different stylistic register, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the first section, which do you, and I'm using pronouns now just depending on which part of the story we're talking about, like the first part, which deals with his early life and works a con artist around the country, has a really kind of awkward and grating animation style, yes. which is made up of photographs that are then superimposed. I mean, and just some anecdotes that don't go anywhere. Yes, exactly. Like there's a lot of backstory yeah. uh, behind 
this person. Mm. Um, and sure, like, I mean, that's fine to mm. give them some context, to give a mm. sense of their personality. But there's an anecdote, for example, um, you know, that one of the talking heads says about walking about, home, about walking home yeah, like going one. to a dance and then walking yeah. 10 miles home. Was, what was the relevance to that? It's kind of funny. Like, I wondered whether some of those older characters were there to kind of normalize the transgender stuff or mm. to kind of assure us that people in this character's own time were okay with it like there was a kind of there was a padding of older voices i thought which was partly about that i mean yeah and the, the animation that first i mean the first section i think is the weakest like the animation i think is quite ugly yeah and, i mean it's a sort of cutout style animation yeah. where you have his image superimposed on a kind of really crude cartoon mm. Mm. that's recreating some pretty non non-eventful incidents yeah. in the 1950s. All I could think was like you know yeah. a large part of what this character does in their early life is identity like forging documents, forging identity mm. documents. So a lot of their life is spent cutting and pasting and copying stuff together. So right. I guess it kind of mirrored that. That's okay. where it was so going. The for. symbolism, but it, it was it was a strange choice, don't yeah. you think? It looks like South Park. <laughs> it does look <laughs> more like Terence and Philip in Ter- South Park. Terence and Philip in South Park. <laughs> and I mean, the first section is also very dense like information like it's just this continuous barrage of information yes there were lots of talking heads so i couldn't quite figure out what their relationship was to the main character the brother the the sister Mm. the Mm. cousin it was and i mean i guess again i thought maybe like gradually we shift from hearing about contemporaries of this character to hearing about their children and and, and his her children um at the time recount how when their father at that point their father was um engaged in these con jobs they pretty much moved home every kind of week or yes. two so he found moving house cheaper than paying rent than paying rent that exactly was quite a good quote. and there's some incredible stories like about how they you know had to be prepared to move at a second's notice and they, they'd be ready to move even if the police were next door camps yeah. in the neighborhood so yeah. they obviously lived a very fast-paced lifestyle mm. and that the series kind of mimics that i guess in the way it delivers it yeah which which captures, I guess, the breakneck speed of how they moved around the country, but it is quite exhausting yeah. to watch and listen to. That that first part, I thought I, I could probably read about this yeah. and get a better sense of it than the first third. The story starts coming into into focus once mm. they talk about the transition and how yes. groundbreaking and, I, I suppose, pioneering it was to undergo or to actually transition mm. gender in the 1970s. At that point, and that yeah. bit, I think it becomes really compelling then. I mean, it moves away from the animation then. Yes, and there's, be- all, there's very little animation no. there, probably out of sensitivity to the subject matter. Well, that's but, true, yeah. But you do wonder, you know, why that, why why use this, this particular style at the beginning at but not carry through? Absolutely. And I just think, you know, at that point, it becomes talking heads. You see more footage of the main character living as a woman and it just... It becomes, I think, a lot more simple. You know, it becomes fascinating, actually, to see what transitioning looked like yeah. in the 1970s. Yeah, have stories about um, her having to buy hormones herself mm. and inject them herself and struggling to find employment. And I think it kind of contextualises the first part in a really powerful way, too. So they have a prominent trans um, academic, Susan Stryker, just pointing out the time that being trans could really prevent you from getting any kind of reasonable job. Yeah. And, you know, so... You know, you, you do sense in the first part that this character, before he is transitioned or she is transitioned, that restless moving around the country is a, is a kind of line of flight from something. Yes. Like there is something that she's fleeing or something that's propelling her. And it's only once she transitions that she really settles down into a job. Although, interestingly, the job itself eventually involves cars. Yes. And it eventually involves driving. So that same propulsive restlessness comes in at the end. But, yeah, I just found that bit really kind of compelling i guess like Mm. i mean the first bit was like such an info dump that it just even just relaxing into a more regular documentary pace Mm. thought maybe it's even by comparison to the first bit it was really compelling i think the way they try to tie them together Mm. is through this reading Mm. that she gives that suggests that because transgenderism was such a new phenomenon then Mm. and because they had uh, transgender people had so few opportunities Mm. in mainstream society mm. that they were pushed towards more marginal, marginal maybe or criminal, criminal yeah. um, type mm. lifestyles or deviant type mm. lifestyles which I think was quite an interesting mm. reading I don't know whether you know you can 100% sheet home the criminality to um, obviously you know this gender yeah. I suppose dysphoria or whatever it was no but there definitely is you sense a restlessness in the character like you sense yeah. that the moving around the country is not just about practicalities it's not just about fleeing the police, but it's about a restless 
lifestyle in search of something or fleeing from something. Yeah, so, and I, I think all the ident- identity fraud and that, yes, that, I suppose, deliberate exactly. confusion of identity... It all plays into it. it. does play into it. So I think that's that's the kind of thematic connection yeah. between yes, the two, but it, exactly. it does take quite a while for that to kind of come yes, to view. Yes, exactly. Um, but once it does, I kind of found that, you know, even though I didn't really like the style of the first third, I appreciated the story it told, and in a way I only kind of understood the story it told more in retrospect which seems to be an experience that a lot of the characters in the film have yes. so they they experience this character um what's the character's name after elizabeth carmichael elizabeth carmichael they experience elizabeth when she is presenting as a man um as a kind of disorienting figure mm. like somebody who is very moves a lot talks a lot and is always is never one thing like he's always restless so all the characters experience her as a kind of disorienting figure and they too only recognize retrospectively Oh, in some cases, a long time retrospectively, what was happening. So I yeah. thought maybe it's trying to put you in that position of encountering this man, inverted commas, and feeling totally disoriented by him and his story, and then recognising post-transition what actually was happening. Yeah. It does that, it's, it does that quite well, I yeah. thought. And then the segues into the third part, which is about yeah. her founding a mm. automobile company mm. and releasing an unusual... Mm. Uh, fuel-efficient vehicle. And mm. I think it does a good job contextualising why mm. there was a need to mm. launch something that, I guess, in my mind, looks so ridiculous now. Mm. It looks like a, a bicycle or one of the vehicles that Mr Bean torments in mm. in his um, in the series there. It's funny, because I, I watched Mr Bean recently and apparently that three-wheeled car, it, it it's a particular brand that recurs throughout British culture as a symbol of like, kind of eccentricity. Right, and right. There's something... Kind of European wackiness. Yeah, but there's, there's something, isn't there, like, I guess, resonant about... I mean, it's so obvious in a way, but it's also at the time resonant, like, you know, when things are kind of closeted or hidden, the parallels are so obvious that they kind of hide in plain sight, like a character who is effectively, well, identifying as a woman, but, you know, trans, like third gender in a way, mm. a three-wheel car... You know, yeah, the, the the series seems to kind of draw a connection between the way in which she transforms this car into something really spectacular in her own transition. Like it's the yeah. car seems like such a powerful object, so obvious in a way that at the time it it was almost obscured. You know, yeah. in, the, in the way that things can be when you're in a state of being closeted. So yeah, yeah, it's the very, car is like a cipher for the her. car, and the car is the Dale. Yeah, uh, she yeah. named after yes, someone exactly. who. I think was the original inventor of the yes. very rudimentary version of this exactly. car. Exactly. So it's very compressed, this bit at the end. But yeah. yeah, I got the impression that the Dale figure invented the three-wheel car as a kind of almost like a, as a lorry or a Jeep, as something yeah. really banal, and then she transforms it into yeah. a kind of luxury item. I think it captures that panic, the, the peak peak oil panic of yes, the 1970s quite absolutely. well. There's a lot of great scenes of you know vehicles lining up outside gas pumps Absolutely. and you know the the idea that mm. the oil reserves are running low and that we yeah. need to you know enter into kind of more sustainable way of driving um, and I think it, it does actually put you into the shoes of someone mm. who in the 70s it makes I guess sells this the mm. idea of this vehicle mm. to a certain extent um, mm. pretty effectively and I sense that'll become more of a thing in later episodes yeah. too, like the anatomy of the car and what it involves. Yeah. But again, I found I found again the third. Even though we kind of sketched out her design and mm. creation of this car, vehicle, mm. this um, car corporation, it was it's again pretty opaque exactly where it's going to go. Well, it's fun, and even just talking about it clarifies what made the structure unusual. I think like you start with this completely disorienting character in the first act and you know really basically like this hyperactive info dump with you know quite manic jarring animation then in the second act it's all kind of contextualized retrospectively but at the very moment at which it is you get a glimpse in the third act of what's going to come in the future so it kind of it doesn't really give you anywhere to settle it doesn't no. give you any present tense or it doesn't give you any stable characterization to settle in which i guess is part of the way i mean maybe you could say this is a pilot that really evokes what the transit it's a transitional yeah. text yeah it's a transitional object the pilot i think it also might evoke the sense of i suppose the investigation yes. into yes. elizabeth carmichael yep. and the discovery that this was originally somebody else who had a different identity and yes exactly and it, it's it's certainly disorienting and yes, it's it, a it's evoking that maybe deliberately or mm. or unconsciously, but it's yeah. certainly... I've certainly felt at sea for a lot of this. Well, combining, part. I guess, those two different... Converging those two perspectives, I mean, it captures the disorientation of traditional... the public and traditional law and order and, I guess, the limits of procedure and investigation in coming to terms with something like trans identity at the time. So that that that, that kind of encounter 
the disorientation of that encounter is what it captures. Yeah. But on the other side of that spectrum, like I thought it was really interesting and, you know, sympathetic just seeing insights into what it was like to be trans in the workplace mm. in the 70s. So, you know, she finally gets a job and it seems like... It's just kind of interesting. Like, it seems like some people just treat her as one of the boys. Some people, matter-of-factly, you know, see her as a woman. But there is, interestingly, in this particular workplace, there is a kind of level of to which it is it is and can be normalised. So yeah. it's, just, it's just interesting seeing... I imagine for trans people, it'd be a really interesting series to see just to get a sense of that deep history. Yeah. Relatively deep yeah. history. And yeah. Yeah. The hidden history. I've, I've, I'm very intrigued where it goes because mm. at the end there was a series, like a kind of couple of montages about where mm. it might go with a voiceover saying mm. financial fraud. and and But again, I just... No, it's very complete, disorienting. It's completely yeah. unpredictable, apart yeah. from the fact that the car is obviously in some way fraudulent, or there's, yeah. some, there's some issue with the car. But yeah. I mean, in that sense, maybe it's like it is a really effective preview because oh, effective pilot because it is it withholds a lot. It withholds a lot. Yeah, it's disorienting in quite an intriguing kind of way, and it was a kind of preview. The first twenty minutes, like I almost. It's kind of drifting off. I was like, oh, can I get through this? I was this? the same. Yeah. I was the same. I can really I, drifted off in that first 15 minutes. Can I finish this? But actually, yeah. as it went on, I became more and more kind of compelled by it. And But at the very moment at which I became oriented, then all of a sudden there was this new information thrown in. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like it, it is like a transitional object, the pilot. Like there's something mm. it doesn't... It, it refuses to allow you to situate her in a consistent way or in a way that's conventional that yeah. I thought was interesting there's certainly something something I guess unknowable yes about about this character and that's really that's that's the hook here or at least or at least it captures there's something restless about her and it captures her yeah. restlessness it doesn't quite tie down her restlessness in a way that I thought was yeah, yeah really compelling yeah so I think the uh, the hook here is a character based mm. hook rather than a plot based hook because mm. I don't think it does give you quite enough narratively no, I agree. to hook you in but if you if you're intrigued by this character mm. And their backstory and and where they mm. go and and possibly in some ways the Dale is is mm. a play to be for mm. mainstream acceptance mm. in some ways. Um, I think it, I think then you will enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, and the middle act in particular is there's a, nothing criminal in it. It's just about a character. It's about the experience of coming out as transgender, being in the workplace as transgender. And I thought very interestingly hearing about her children's experience. Yeah. It's a bit like transparent in that sense, yeah, like just hearing about how the children dealt with it in the 70s and how they handled it and how her wife handled it. Like the middle bit, I think, is, is almost the most compelling in that sense. Mm. But I am intrigued to and see guess, where the crime element goes as well. Yeah, I guess another one of these examples of a, a true crime, inverted commas, docuseries, really being about mm. more... Yeah, or than the true crime, or the or actual, adja- the actual adjacent to yeah, it. Yeah, the actual criminal act is quite, is quite, um, I suppose, yeah, is not central to the story in some ways. Or if it is central, mm. it's really just the hook which you build, you build around. And I guess you know displacing criminality in interesting ways too, because I mean I know at the time, you know, gay intercourse was illegal. I'm, I'm not sure, but there would have been certain things around trans identification yeah. would have been illegal. A too, lot of so interesting like the things about. You know, in fact, you had to get divorced if you wanted to, you yes. know, your marriage recognised if you did change yes, gender and stuff exactly. like that. So that transitional yes, that state under yeah, the law was, yeah, was interesting exactly. as well. Exactly, the fact you couldn't you couldn't transition if you had children. So, like, because of how it would adversely affect them. Yeah, so, like, the way in which it, it is quite deaf, the way in which it takes really what to many people at the time would have been the biggest crime, both legally and morally, the transition itself and just kind of spreads the criminality around it but doesn't touch that part of it with criminality at all i thought yeah. it was really effective yeah. yeah so this for me at least in the first half hour was it was an out yeah. and then it started hooking me back in yeah, so i, I think agree. i'd probably say a tentative in yes yeah, i agree totally okay on to our next show so we've had quite a few australian comedies the last couple of weeks haven't yeah. we? yeah it's a t- we're tapping into a rich vein the the 2021 australian comedy moment and look i think this this is easily my favorite <laughs> so, i knew i knew you would love this I series was, almost from the first scene i, I was I, I knew 30 seconds into this i was going to be a hard in um it's basically a kitty flanagan comedy and you know, I think kind of long overdue, like, I mean, since she, she was so good in Utopia, I mean, she's obviously had shows and been in stuff before, but she's got, you know, she, I think, gained a new kind of general visibility with Utopia. 
Are you, are you a fan? Uh, I've seen a few yeah, episodes, so awesome. but I do lo- I do love her. When, whenever I've seen her yeah, in she's a real, any comic role, yeah. she's great. Yeah, you know, I know she's been in heaps of stuff, but that show made me realise how much I've been wanting to see more more of her. And this is such a great vehicle for her. So she plays um, what's her character? Helen that? Helen Tudor Fisk. Helen Tudor Fisk. So it is incredible. Like the show's called Fisk. It's great kind of peremptory opening where she rocks up to a. Um, basically like a legal recruiter yeah, and, recruiter. and explains that she's got fired from a job. She's pretty unceremonious and they get her an interview with a um, small legal firm in Melbourne that specialises in um, dealing with like wills, wills and, and estates, estate, yeah. stuff like that. She gets a job pretty easily and basically from there it's a workplace sitcom. Um, it is and a family sitcom. And a family it's sitcom. Both of those things, uh, yeah. That's uh, great. I mean, I think she's got, she's got such a great comic voice and this show works to her strength so well. What did you think about it? I thought it was great. I think this was... Um, I thought this was both really charming mm. and also, at times, laugh-out-loud funny. Mm, I agree. I thought, yeah, it's that combination of that unusual kind of... The workplace comedy. In some ways, it's like mm. The Office, um, and it's got that quite wacky cast mm. of characters as well. And but, on that note, just on the side, I felt like the suburban law firm is such underused fodder. I mean, how has there not been more yeah. comedy? It's such a great... Are there any big sitcoms set in small law firms like it? No, I, I can't think so. I think I think there's a there's a, like it's an a unusual great... kind of comic combination. I think because mm. normally when we think of legal shows, we think of you know L.A. Law mm. or Suits. You know mm. the the glamour and the glitz mm. of you know high end mm. you know criminal law or yeah. corporate law mm. and so forth. Mm. There's something quite. There's, there's an element of bathos about, mm. you know, quite an unglamorous suburban law firm dealing with, you know, minor things and quirky characters, quirky clients and in I some guess ways. the majority of people who are lawyers don't work in big corporate law firms. They work well, in small... Well, this is your meat and potatoes type. Yeah, suburban, type. regional, yeah. local practices. So yeah. I, I really feel like it's, it's an under... It's fertile ground for a sitcom. For sure. And I feel like I've sure. never seen it before. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's nice that it punctures that self-seriousness mm. of a lot of these and grandstanding mm. and speechifying of a lot of legal shows in some ways. And I, f- I mean, maybe you can say that that's, that very gesture is encapsulated in her style because she has such a great, like, self-deprecating swagger. Yes. So she'll be talking herself up and then all of a sudden she'll puncture it with some comment about herself, about her appearance, about her qualifications. But she also has a great ability to kind of observe and think out loud. So yes. she'll be talking to people in, in the middle of crafting a persona for herself and then she'll make, kind of overhear herself making an observation that she shouldn't have made and stuff it up. Like yes. It's like she just has a great way of, of yeah, like swaggering and, you know, self-deprecating at the same time. So yeah. It's a, re- it's a really, it's a really funny, like really enjoyable comic style. Yeah. yeah. And I think what's what's great about this as well and I think what's promising mm. from a pilot is mm. that it it establishes such a rich cast mm. of yeah. of supporting characters, mm. not just the characters in the law firm. So um, Marty Sheargold plays Ray Gruber mm-hmm. and Julia Zamiro plays Roz Gruber. So Gruber and Gruber Gruber and Gruber. Gruber, Gruber. Gruber. <laughs> yep. And um, Aaron Chen is very funny as the office receptionist, yes. yeah. George. Um, but not just that, but also a very funny family dynamic as mm. well. So because she's left a, I suppose, a more glamorous job and a relationship in Sydney, she comes to Melbourne and she's both uh, jobless and mm. homeless mm. and she resorts to living in an Airbnb. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of really funny back and forth between her and the actual owners of the yes. house. Yep. And I suppose you're know, playing up the, the kind of weird... The weird proximity that you have when you stay in an air, Airbnb. Kind of so it's like, you know, weird domesticity. Yeah. Which is like a great, or not weird, but just unusual domesticity. Yes. Which is great for... Yes. I mean, and in the cast, I mean, you know, this this had such a kind of coziness. Like, it reminded me from the very outset so much of Australian comedies of, like, the 90s and noughties. And so to have Alison White and Glenn Robbins in the cast just totally cements that. Like, it feels like... It feels like a comedy kind of from an older time in some ways, in really cosy. I mean, even the way it depicts Melbourne, like, it's like almost like Melbourne's a small town. Yes. It's like there's a small town in the middle of the city. Yes, that's right. It's a bit like, did you ever see Rosehaven? No, no. That's a safe space. Yeah, or a bit like Mr. and Mrs. Murder kind of treats Melbourne as a bit of a small town as well. It's another one of my safe spaces. Yes. I mean, I have a a list of Australian (laughs) comedies that became safe spaces. Rosehaven, The XPM, Mr. and Mrs. Murder. This is obviously the latest in that long line. Well, what I'm intrigued about is what makes a safe space 
comedy like this? Yeah. What are the elements that need to be in place for you to really attach to these you know, you know, I think, cosy type comedies? You know, I think part of it is like not to bang on about how everything is a result of digital culture, but like I think the safe space, it has to be a space. It has to feel spatial. Yeah. And like, you know, in a digital era, space means less and less. You know, digital space has overtaken physical space. Whereas this series has such an old-fashioned, like old-timey sense of actual physical space. Like the office is quite dated. It's the series is very clear and careful in telling you the bit different parts of the office. The different parts of the office become a, a comic thing in themselves. There's a whole running joke about the toilet key, which one of the partners keeps by her desk. There's a coffee shop downstairs. She gets kicked out of the coffee shop, so she has to go to a Seven Eleven. But even that, she turns into a cosy space. And it's very, it's very, very little kind of digital technology in it. Like the only time that smartphones and digital technology is used is to make her feel like a bit of an anachronism. So yeah. the guy who works there, the webmaster, takes a photo of her and touches it up so she looks younger. So I think there is something about just lived physical space and just keeping digital stuff at a distance yeah. really lends itself to coziness. And, and I guess re- restoring the meaning of place yeah, in exactly. some ways. It's like very place. Yeah, very, very place and space oriented. Uh, um, I mean, even the Airbnb thing, it's, you're immediately aware that the light of the house, the fact that there's a granny flat attached, the comedy comes from the fact that the woman who lives in the granny flat keeps on coming into the house. Like the yeah. whole, there's a very... There's a very vivid attention to places and yeah. a kind of old timey sense right. of neighborhood. Like yeah, that's a right. Sense or, of like, or like locale. It's like yep. with this global culture instead we're yeah. kind of we're retreating to the local and to yep. the regional exactly. kind of regionalism. Exactly. Um, it's it's uh, this almost would work if it was set in a small town. It's it feels surprising like, that it feels it's like not. it feels like yeah. a small town. It certainly turns Melbourne into a small town. You don't see skyscrapers at no. all. And, and that, in a way, makes it kind of cosier as well. Like, I think there's a, that's the real pleasure of watching a sitcom often in that sense. It's a sense of watching a show that's set in a city like the one you're watching it in, presumably if you're watching the city, but but that allows you to see the city in your city as a kind of small town. So, yeah. And, yeah, so I think that's part of what makes it cosy. And, you know, all the, all the jokes in The Office are around different parts. Like, there's a whole joke where one of the Gruber's shows are around and compartmentalises everything. So it has a really vivid sense. You can, it, it really lets you attach to that workplace immediately, I think. Definitely. Um, yeah. So I, There's I something just, quite enjoyably low stakes about the drama here as well. Yeah. Um, the, for example, the first dramatic conflict involves two parties who are arguing over like the yeah. allocation of ashes mm. Yeah, as, you know, a deceased, um, mm. you know, the deceased ashes, oh, yeah, really, the, the, between... The, the Alison yeah. White and Glenn Robbins characters, yeah. And, yeah, it just... It's something about Kitty Flanagan's energy, too. Like, it's it's kind of... She's, like, high-key and low-key at the same time. She like, is. She has a kind of hyperactivity, like, in that she's always <laughs> talking. But because she's always talking, it just becomes a kind of continuous mumble or a continuous, yeah. like, patter, she has a patter weird, dialogue. Yeah, it's like a weird combination. She's high-strung, but she's also easygoing. Yeah, exactly. There's a, that's there's what, a, there's a weird paradox about exactly. her that's, comic persona. That's what it is. So it's, it's intriguing. Like she's, she, she talks so much that it just kind of becomes almost like white noise, like yes. her ongoing monologue. So I think that... That's exactly the right yeah. vibe for it. I was kind of wondering, watching it, like I really hope they get what makes her. Like I really hope it it's, it plays to her strength. Yeah. I think it, and it's not that different from the character in Utopia. Remember, she's like the fixer, like the PR fixer, and there she's more corporate and she's more assured, but she has the same kind of slight oblivion to when it's appropriate to say things. Like she has the kind of same sense of always carrying on a kind of. It's like her dialogue is always interspersed with an internal monologue. Yes. And the transitions between them are really funny. Yes. And that's what kind of yes, makes the that's comedy. Right. The, yeah. the other great relationship here is with her with her father yep. and his new partner. Yes. Um, form, so her father is a very famous magistrate, mm. now so retired. Is this episode two? No, this is episode one. With her father? Which which bit's that? When, when do we meet her father? Did I watch episode two inadvertently? <laughs> so in the, in the episode you're watching, is there... Is there cause you seem to do a double take when I mentioned Alison White and Glenn Robbins. Yes, I had Were they in your... No, so like the first episode... Did I watch episode two? Yeah, you might have. <laughs> Oops. But I, I know what you because I, I went to watch it on ABC Play and it said play episode and I assume okay. it looked like there was only one okay you got to go to more episodes you got to go to more episodes so in, in does, does yours open with the recruit recruiter scene yes okay does yours have the the drama about the vasectomy no that's the pilot man the, ah. pilot, the pilot's a vasectomy episode oops yeah, well yeah. <laughs> 
But in a way, like, doesn't that speak to what we're saying that we can talk about? We can talk about um, the show, and in a way, the, a good sitcom really. The second episode is, is yes. It's by it, the by, really. Yes, and some ways, good some, save. <laughs> I, I've, I've really, I feel like I've really saved a set. Yep. Sometimes we say that sometimes watching the pilot, especially for a sitcom, is quite an inaccurate way of really. Well, I wouldn't go that reviewing, far. <laughs> I wouldn't go that the far. The series because no, I think it's going to go through all the plot mechanics yeah, in no, some ways. So you're trying to I say think what I did was more honest. You're trying to say that you've watched the real pilot. Um, yeah. So did, did, in the second episode, are the jokes about the toilet key? Is that in there? Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. But I also noticed that you kind of did a double take. I talked about the guy taking photographs of it, the webmaster. Does that happen in the second no, episode? Okay. No, okay. This, this is all. This is all the, the stuff in the pilot. Yeah, but I think I think one of the one yeah, of the joys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it all it all hold, it all holds. It all it all it all stands. One of the joys of this type of sitcom is yeah. just like the U.S. Office. You could start in season three, and you wouldn't really lose much. You might you might lose a bit <laughs> in, in in that case, but you know I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm, I'm actually good to hear the second episode is good. I'm glad to hear the second episode. Oh, is the episode good, is I, really good. Yeah, yeah. But thirty seconds. Yeah, I mean, I knew. Look for this. I knew thirty seconds in. I was hooked. And I have to admit, when I watched The Lady in the Dale, after those first 20 minutes, which were just all info dump, I actually stopped it and rewatched the pilot of Fisk, and then I went back to Lady in the Dale. So already the Fisk pilot has become a kind of safe space. Like the Fisk pilot has propelled me through a more challenging pilot. I can see how your 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 former major deep emotional bond with this series. And it is part of that kind of Australian, like, you know, kind of. Really like back to the 90s. and Yeah, there's a dagginess to it. A dagginess, but especially recent shows. like Well, I think actually not so much like Utopia. I think Utopia is going for a more prickly kind of satire. I think this is more like the XPM, yes. Mr. and Mrs. Murder, um, and there's another one I mentioned. Rosehaven. Uh, Ro- uh, Rosehaven. Rose so yeah. those three. But yeah. I think I think it's actually stronger. Or Mr. and Mrs. Murder is pretty, pretty up there. There's a, <laughs> a time when I watch Mr. and Mrs. Murder every afternoon after work for a year. Um, I know every episode yeah. off by heart, but it, it, this, this is as good as Mr. Yeah. and Mrs. I hope, I hope there are some good cameos. In the second yeah. episode, are there any, cam- are there any well, se- In okay. the second episode, there were like, I recognised almost in every single yeah. person in the cast. It was like a great comic troupe of actors. And, and there yeah. was there was a kind of, there was a certain rotating troupe of actors and Australian dramas and like a comedy. Yes. And, like, almost the, the, the alum, alumni of Full Frontal and all those skit shows in some ways. I'm actually just curious. I'm looking at who the cast is in the second yeah. episode. But um, of all the part, of all the um, sitcoms I've watched so far as yeah. part of this this podcast, this is by far and away my favourite of yeah. all. Even the archives. Yep. So, even Mary Tyler Moore. Yep. Look, yeah. I think I, I can't go quite that far, but I think it's certainly the strongest yeah. Australian. This is one of the few I actually laughed out loud. Like yeah, and I think five or six. Times. I think it does go to show that, like, when it comes to, I mean, it's funny, like, bump and um, why you like this. In some ways, both going for a more edgy or avant-garde kind of style, but you know, for all their darkness and all their you know hubris and all their edginess. You know, I, thought, I like I did like Bump, but you know, for all they had that kind of dark element or the kind of edgy element, it kind of shows like one of the hardest things to do, I think, as a comedian, is just be deftly self-deprecating. Yes, and I think that like Kitty, like there's that willingness to laugh at yourself in in a genuine way. Yes, and when it's deftly done, there's nothing like it for comedy. So That's I, right. I, I think you've got to have good a good actors in the right persona and with some with some sharp jokes and an sharp a, writing and an, yeah. and an awareness to draw out their own ridiculousness which yeah. I mean look I did really like Bump but I think this does it even better I think this is a real winner so yeah. I, I loved it I mean, I mean I was in I was basically in from the first shot you're already re-watching yeah I've already re-watched the pilot and I made and I made Carl re- I made Carl watch it with me too so like I feel like this is I'm going to be watching this week by week this is my new favourite safe space several times on Sev- rotation several times alright so mm-hmm. on to our archive corner for this week and for this one, I've been circling around it for a while, but I thought I'd pull the trigger and go with the absolute classic, The X-Files. Great choice, yeah. So The X-Files, obviously, you know, if you've been living under a rock, um, it is a science fiction drama. Some of the creatures in the show have. Oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, so it's created by Chris Carter. Um, originally aired from 1993 to 2002 on Fox Went for nine seasons, over 200 episodes. Um, there was a short 10th season, six episodes. It concluded in 2016, believe it or not, as recently as that. Yeah, I remember it was rebooted, wasn't it? But, well, it continued. That's right. Rebooted, yeah. yeah. There, was, um, there was an 11th season, actually, in right. 2018. So it's mm. quite recent provenance, believe it or not. But the going back to the original makes you realise, well, okay, this, is, this feels quite 
remote in some ways well, from I, the present. I remember when it was rebooted, there was a lot of commentary placing it alongside the Twin Peaks reboot, which was 2017. So I feel like that was the same moment. And we'll come on to it, but certainly one of the things that struck me here was how how much it seemed to be influenced by Twin Peaks yes, in style. But we'll come on to that. Yeah. yeah, so the series revolves around two detectives um, in the FBI. Um, they are Fox Mulder, played by David Duchovny, and Dan mm. Scully, played by Gillian Anderson. Mm. And I think what's remarkable about this this pilot is mm. how much is already set in place. Yeah, it, it feels like feels it was birthed completely... Completely fully formed. Com- yeah, fully, fully formed, formed, yeah. The, the entire aesthetic, the characterisation, the, the set- premise. The setup yeah. is very efficient mm. and to the point it establishes the polarity between these two characters. Mm. I think what's really amazing is the way that they set up the Fox Mulder character in particular. Mm. They build a lot of drama and suspense around the reveal of him in particular. Mm. So we have, like a lot of X-Files mm. um, pilots, we have or a lot of the X-Files episodes, mm. we start sort of in the middle of the action in media race where we're in, the, and I always associate this particular landscape with the X-Files, a kind of dripping... The Pacific Northwest. Dripping Pacific yeah. Northwest I, forest. I, I mean, I we'll come back to that in a sec too, but yeah, that, that setting is so incredibly a part of the whole style yes. of it. A camera roving through this, yep. this kind of dank forest... Mm. Uh, tracing another character who's being mm. chased by some mysterious entity. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, in my mind, in my imagination, it completely cemented the woods, the American... I mean, I guess it's an extension of American Gothic, like that focus with the woods. It completely cements the woods as the prime site of extraterrestrial encounters. So yes. I feel like in, like, like, 70s and 80s cinema, I think of extraterrestrials, E.T., Close Encounters... The Midwest yes. is nearly always the site of extraterrestrial encounters, for, I think, for a whole lot of cultural and geographical reasons. But this shifts the extraterrestrial moment back to the woods. And there's, yes, there's that's a, right. There's a scene, I think, where um, Mulder says the forest controls them, the forest summons them. Yes. I guess that sense that the forest and is, is the prime site of extraterrestrial... There's an interesting kind of mythology of, associated with it. And yeah. I guess in X-Files, the way they oscillate between monsters, mm. serial killers mm. and extraterrestrials, I guess, explains why that, that gothic sense of the woods is revived here. Yes, and, and, I, and I sense, like, I feel like at this time... I mean, it's so appropriate. I mean, the investigation here takes place into a group of people from the class of 89 who vanished. Yes. And that, that feels so appropriate because this feels like... The series feels like it's almost carving out a particular kind of 90s fascination with, like, the kind of exotic fringes of the FBI. So yes. the exotic fringes of crime. So I've stuff like serial killers, criminal psychology, the paranormal, forensic science, autopsy procedure, and now extraterrestrial stuff. Like, there's this real fascination with the kind of exotic fringes of what crime is and yes it feels so right it's set in the pacific northwest too because that's in the, i think in the american imagination that is where the idea of the serial killer first emerged mm, you know people like ted bundy and yeah. gary ridgeway so there's a very strong native american influence there as yeah, well true. And there's something kind of yep. totemic about these these monsters yes, and, and exactly. extraterrestrials that, are, that emerge here yeah, exactly as if you know visitors from another mm. another world in some way. So I think what's what's incredible about this pilot is the setup. The setup is mm. wonderful. Mm. We have that that you know the, the, the opening mm. which I think is a classic hallmark of the X-Files that, yeah, that dramatic opening with cold the, open. You get the cold open the crime anything, or the that's a breaking encounter. bad thing. That's a breaking bad thing. And didn't Vince Gilligan work yes, on the X-Files? Yes, I wonder if that was, I wonder yeah. if the breaking bad cold open I think that's right. Came that, from yeah, the that, X-Files. that framing device like mm. that is so effective. Right. And then mm. then we flash forward to the FBI. Mm. And we meet, well, I guess, a couple of anonymous kind of, I guess, FBI... Drones. Yeah, drones, you know, mm. bureaucrats mm. who are interviewing a new initiate, a new recruit, mm. uh, Dana Scully, who... And we learn a lot about her backstory. She's, mm. So she's, a, she's trained as a medical doctor. Mm. She's recruited to the FBI because she wanted to excel in her particular field. Mm. She famously believes in the power of science. She's, mm. a, she's a skeptic. So in order to monitor the activities of the more out there Fox Mulder. Mm. They place her and they assign her to work with him mm. and be sort of their eyes and ears. But they never really say that as such. Mm. They they introduce Fox Mulder in an incredibly interesting way. So mm. he's an Oxford graduate. He wrote a thesis on the occult. Mm. And he has a backstory which they only sketch out, which you later learn as mm. you as they investigate this crime i think that thesis i think it's called something like serial killings and the occult or serial killers and occult and again there's this sense 
since the 90s, like this interest, this new sense of exoticism when it comes to crime scenes. So crime scenes now aren't just the record of regular crimes, they're the record of serial killings, of occult happenings. And it's almost like the way they represent aliens here or extraterrestrial life here isn't isn't simply as little green men or as anything kind of cliche, but like a new kind of crime scene. Yes. Or a new kind of disruption or a new kind of absence in the yes. crime scene. So yes. there's like this new unknown quantity in crime scene investigation, which is like the residue of extraterrestrial encounters yeah. in a way that's really powerful, I think. Yeah. The show sits, I think, in, you know, quite an interesting precipice between mm. different genres, mm. you know, sci-fi, crime, mm. uh, the occult, supernatural. So... And, I kind of just kind of swinging wide here, but I kind of wondered, like, just this is just a general impression. I remember in the '90s, like, we've talked before about how in the years before the internet came out, there was this sense of connectivity in so much cinema. Like, there was this gothic sense of everything being connected in ways that people couldn't quite figure out yet. Yes. And I remember, like, in horror films, for example, like there was a fascination with like urban legends. You know, the film yes. Urban Legend. I know what you did last summer has yes. an urban legend. Networks of information. Networks of information, mm. but kind of arcane networks of information. Yes. Networks of information that were like semi-legitimate, and that weren't based on sources, but like word of mouth and yes. stuff being passed down. So Scream is like that too. So it just this feels part of that yes. bigger that bigger interest, 90s interest in crime especially and violence as being networked into a whole lot of really arcane, mm. obscure, exotic things. Sort of a web of information. Yeah. In some ways it's appropriate that this series ends with uh, the smoking man yes. archiving yes. a file in some ways, caching a file, if ab- you will, ab- in a kind of, in the Pentagon's kind of um, archive or their, their kind of informational Absolutely. apparatus. I was going to say that. Ways. So like exactly the final image almost in the final scene almost tries to imagine an archive big enough or obscure enough or underground enough or invisible enough to contain and connect all these arcane pieces of information so it's i think that's where all that stuff comes together like you know like um serial killers extraterrestrials occult stuff it's all they're all networked kinds Mm. of activities Mm. that are really hard to pin down and just on that note like I mean, this really reminded me, amazingly reminded me. I mean, obviously, I hadn't realised how much it prefigured shows like Mindhunter yes. and um, Hannibal. And so, and not just the content of those shows, not just the serial killing and the occult stuff, but kind of like the rhythm. So though, all those, though, both those shows, Hannibal and Mindhunter, they're so peripatetic, like they're so mobile. They're about characters who are investigating paranormal activity all around the country. So mm. they go from place to place. Mm. And in each place they go to, they have to kind of dig deep into the local textures yes. to uncover what's happening, whether it's a serial killing or whether it's something occult, mm. as in Hannibal. And just this has that rhythm, like it has that rhythm of that restless, ceaseless movement from place mm. to place, digging into local textures to try and capture things like serial killings, extraterrestrial encounters, occult phenomena that are so networked that they seem mm. supernatural. It's like going intensely regional in yes. order to establish something, a kind of global... Something hugely global. ...network. Yes, it's like, exactly. yeah, the, the way to access this yes. is to find a node... An individual ...and nodes. tap into that node. Exactly. Like, great specificity. Yes. So yeah, there's enormous, like, minutiae about Belleville in Washington, I think. Exactly, is. which I think, among other things, you know, means it has... This has such an incredible sense of place. It does, yeah. And... and the very idea of place is almost inherently uncanny. Like, the more that the series elaborates the atmosphere or the texture or the tone of a place, the more it feels like they're going to expose something scary or something supernatural. Like, the more naturalistic it is, the more the supernatural seems to loom. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's so beautiful. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I was astonished by how beautiful... I'd forgotten how beautiful it was. Like, yeah. the yeah, the so style that you know, yeah. yeah. The, the pilot um, yeah. traces effectively a. We it's not it's very ambiguous exactly what the encounter is, but it's mm. it sort of sketches the overall mythology of the X Files, mm. which is that David Duchovny's uh, sister was abducted by aliens. Mm. He has a vague memory of something, mm. a light happening, but then there's there's a kind of ellipsis in his memory. And what I like about that too is, I guess we're talking about this network thing. I mean, the ultimate. The ultimate networked event is a vanishing. Like, yeah, like that's when someone just vanishes, then you become so acutely aware of all the systems of information and the context that surrounded them. And this almost treats extraterrestrial encounters not as 
as presences or as concrete things, but as a new and scarier kind of absence. Mm. And it's almost like it takes the vanishing subgenre of true crime yes. and accelerates it to extraterrestrial proportions. So, I mean, I love that. It's so, it's so eerie and it's dated so well because instead of depending on CGI or upon prosthetics, the extraterrestrial stuff are just these weird ellipses in time and space. Yes. So, yeah. effectively, this pilot um, traces a, um, I suppose... A, a young man who's appears to be in a vegetative state, but mm. who's actually spoiler <laughs> walking around and in some ways abducting others, mm. or at least at least tapping into them or mm. fusing with them in some unusual way. Even describing the the synopsis of this plot is is not not straightforward, but mm. it is just that unusual, I suppose, ambiguity about whether this is a serial killer, whether this mm. is something involving the occult, or whether it is a supernatural entity and mm. it's not really fully resolved at the end it's just like an absence it's like that yeah. scene there's a great scene where that's in the road where they lose six minutes i think i was going to say that and it's that's great. yeah evoking Mulder's own childhood experience mm. as well and there's a great scene where they're driving along when they first enter belleville mm. and there's there's i suppose an intermission on the radio or a transmission on the radio that sort of hacks their radio and mm. he pulls over the side of the road and then takes out a chalk um a stick of chalk and puts a big cross mm. on the side of the road with the with the X, you know, that, that absolute specificity mm. um, about place that's so integral to this series. But also the sense of marking a vanishing or marking an absence. Yes. So the, the X marks a spot, but at the same time it's marking the absence of something. Yes, and this is also the side of the yeah. the lost time, the nine minutes they lose yes. later on in the series. Yes. And there might even be a suggestion that they were abducted as well, yes. which later plays into the overall mythology of the series. One thing I say, I, I experienced a bit differently. I mean, you know, I know Mulder is great. I mean, I, I found, I found Gillian Anderson. I mean, he's great. I mean, he's great. Like the, but I, I, I found her so hypnotic just from the get go mm. here. And more generally, like they're both so beautifully drawn as characters. Yes. Like it's, it could so easily be a really like hackneyed science versus you know supernatural reason versus you know, paranormal, but above and beyond, I mean, they're not, yeah, she's more of a sceptic and he's more of a believer, but it's never done in a hackneyed way. No. And their rapport, I mean, their rapport is so great. Like they introduce the kind of unresolved sexual tension thing right from the get-go. Straight, straight away, but I was, yeah. In such a great way. Like, yeah. you know, the, the scene where he, t- you know, that she, they come very close to being naked together, but it's because he's examining her back for alien markings. It's yes. just the whole thing, the two of them just feel so... I don't know, like so evocative, but also so remote in some ways as characters. Yeah. They're, they're so watchable and they're so intriguing and they have such a great dynamic. I yeah. mean, the, the characterization yeah. is so... And they both have a kind of hushed quality. Like by yes. the end, she's more sceptical, but she understands his, you know... Yes. And they both have this sense of being hushed together on the precipice of the unknown. Yeah. It's such a kind of compelling... This is one of those one of those shows, I think, where both the leads are, are perfectly cast. Perfectly cast. They're having, their characters have incredible chemistry, mm. but the actors also have incredible mm. chemistry. And, the, and they know how to... They know how to kind of pull it back to suit the kind of slightly sombre Pacific Northwest kind of vibe of they it all. They do. But there's also, there's also a slightly kind of self-awareness to both yeah, of them and as the well. Yeah, and the playfulness as well. Yeah, yeah. There, no. there is. It punctures any that sense of self-seriousness yeah, that well, this is maybe, afflicts a lot of series. Yeah. You, know, it, you know, to compare it to Falcon, but to other Marvel stuff or other stuff generally. I mean, this is an example of a show that is quite... Somber's not quite the right road. It's quite muted yes. a lot of the time, but it never has that kind of self-important seriousness. No. Like, it's just... It's sombre, it's moody, it's a bit melancholy, but it does have a playful side. It has a propulsion and a momentum which just keeps the pace up as well. It's just I just yes. I just love that trope of travelling from place to place. Basically, effectively the show is about travelling from place to place, trying to explain vanishings or absences, either literal absences or absences in knowledge. Yeah. And it just it's such a it's just such an incredible so I mean, I, I just I watch this late at night at about midnight, and I just like sank into it. I'm, mm. I'm going to rewatch the whole thing. Yeah, it's no, it's, it really stands up. On yeah. there are there are a few I suppose clunky moments with mm. the especially when they're evoking the the alien in inverted commas here, but you you can easily look past them just because mm. the the characterization, the atmosphere, mm. 
the underlying mythology is so compelling and powerful and fully realised so early on as well. Yes, and just the way in which the aliens have a kind of negative presence mm. more than anything else, I think, is dated really well and really retained. I mean, it's a study in atmosphere yeah. above all, like for all the kind of paranormals. It's a study in atmosphere rather than special effects or overt scares. And I think the atmosphere is just so brooding and so compelling that... I just loved it. I thought, yeah. it was, I thought it was one of the best yeah. ones we've done. If, you, if you're thinking of series that define the 90s, this would have to be it. And Absolutely. I think the, the the emergence of this show, starting out as a cult phenomenon, gradually going mainstream, mm. creating a, like driving a lot of traffic on the internet mm. and I guess driving the mainstreaming of messaging boards as well. Well, in some like, ways. exactly. I mean, it's, and it's, yeah. like, it's like Twin Peaks in that respect, I guess. Like both seem like at some level they're about a new kind of networked information. So yeah. you can see how they were naturally. I mean, yeah. they... Through message boards, the show didn't just describe, but kind of enacted, yes. enacted this was, that networked world. This was the kind of early mainstream internet, the nerd-driven, yeah, um, conspiratorial internet. Absolutely. And I think there's something just so inextricable about the X-Files and the internet that makes it such a classic 90s show. In fact, one of my friends, Melissa, I told her we were re-watching it, and the first thing she said was, I remember that Gillian Anderson was, I think she said, her first ever avatar on an internet message yes. board about it back in the early... So it just it lends itself so well to that, that kind of approach and yeah like it just i mean it, you know amazing too how much it kind of mirrors twin peaks i mean that we discuss it another time maybe but yeah i mean like i said it felt so appropriate that this first investigation is into a high school class of 89 yes because the whole series is poised on the very cusp of the yes. 90s so look I, the information I, revolution the information revolution and look i love it so much actually i took inspiration from this for my pilot club choice for this week so okay. i looked around you know at shows that had a similar a similar vibe like kind of strangeness in the 90s and i came up with a show that i remember seeing at the time and finding quite scary but haven't seen since american gothic oh interesting okay so it's like you know one season show 1995 gary cole plays a kind of corrupt mayor of a small town. I remember it being really strange and really unsettling, I guess, at the time and feeling kind of X-Files adjacent, but I never really watched it in a consistent way. So I thought that'd be kind of interesting, just basically this kind of 90s gothic Fantastic. mode that could be... I love, next... I love forgotten shows, shows yeah. that last lasted one season, yep. might have had a little bit of a, you know, made a little bit of a ripple in, yep. the, in the pool of popular culture, but then just vanished without trace. And also the sense of the people who were... You know, a contingent kind of situation of just seeing it for that one year shows that have been forgotten, but that for some people in define an yes. entire zeitgeist. It certainly resonates for me. I, I don't think I ever saw it, or if yeah. I did, it was you know in mm. the sort of way that you watch TV in the nineties, like you know, late at night, dip in, dip out, yes, exactly. channel surf, episodic. Um, yeah. I certainly remember the ads for it. Yes, it's probably the most prominent memory I, I have, and I think it's probably where I first knew about Gary Cole as an actor. So whenever I see him and stuff, I'm like, oh, it's the guy from American Gothic. Okay. Even though I never really watched it that much. Yeah, it was my, yeah. that weird inchoate moment where you first get a sense of an actor being an actor. So, yes. And I was reading the plot summary of it. It looks like pretty hardcore, like much more intense than I remember it. So, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to revisit. Okay, fantastic. So next week, American Gothic. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club.